Preface and Chapter One, Part One of Miss Map. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Miss Map by E. F. Benson. Preface and Chapter One, Part One. Preface. I lingered at the window of the garden room from which Miss Mapp so often and so ominously looked forth. To the left was the front of her house, straight ahead the steep cobbled way with a glimpse of the high street at the end, to the right the crooked chimney and the church. The street was populous with passengers, but search as I might, I could see none who ever so remotely resembled the objects of her vigilance. E. F. Benson Lamb House, Rye. Chapter One, Part One. Miss Elizabeth Mapp might have been forty, and she had taken advantage of this opportunity by being just a year or two older. Her face was of high, vivid color, and was corrugated by chronic rage and curiosity, but these vivifying emotions had preserved to her an astonishing activity of mind and body which fully accounted for the comparative adolescence with which she would have been credited anywhere except in the charming little town which she had inhabited so long. Anger and the gravest suspicions about everybody had kept her young and on the boil. She sat, on this hot July morning, like a large bird of prey, at the very convenient window of her garden-room, the ample bough of which formed a strategical point of high value. This garden-room, solid and spacious, was built at right angles to the front of her house, and looked straight down the very interesting street which debouched at its lower end into the high street of Tilling. Exactly opposite her front door the road turned sharply, so that as she looked out from this projecting window her own house was at right angles on her left, the street in question plunged steeply downwards in front of her, and to her right she commanded an uninterrupted view of its further course which terminated in the disused graveyard surrounding the big Norman church. Anything of interest about the church, however, could be gleaned from a guide-book, and Miss Mapp did not occupy herself much with such coldly venerable topics. Far more to her mind was the fact that, between the church and her strategic window, was the cottage in which her gardener lived, and she could thus see, when not otherwise engaged, whether he went home before twelve, or failed to get back to her garden again by one, for he had to cross the street in front of her very eyes. Similarly she could observe whether any of his abandoned family ever came out from her garden door, weighted with suspicious baskets, which might contain smuggled vegetables. Only yesterday morning she had hurried forth with a dangerous smile to intercept a laden urchin with inquiries as to what was in that nice basket. On that occasion that nice basket had proved to contain a strawberry net, which was being sent for repair to the gardener's wife, so there was nothing more to be done except verify its return. This she did from a side window of the garden-room which commanded the strawberry beds, she could sit quite close to that, for it was screened by the large-leaved branches of a fig-tree, and she could spy unseen. 
Otherwise this road to the right leading up to the church was of no great importance, except on Sunday morning, when she could get a practically complete list of those who attended divine service, for no one of real interest lived in the humble dwellings which lined it. To the left was the front of her own house, at right angles to the strategic window, and with regard to that a good many useful observations might be, and were, made. She could, from behind a curtain, negligently half-drawn across the side of the window nearest the house, have an eye on her housemaid at work, and notice if she leaned out of a window, or made remarks to a friend passing in the street, or waved salutations with a duster. Swift upon such discoveries, she would execute a flank march across the few steps of garden, and steal into the house, noiselessly ascend the stairs, and catch the offender red-handed at this public dalliance. But all such domestic espionage to right and left was flavourless and insipid, compared to the tremendous discoveries which daily and hourly awaited the trained observer of the street that lay directly in front of her window. There was little that concerned the social movements of Tilling that could not be proved, or at least reasonably conjectured, from Miss Mapp's eyrie. Just below her house on the left stood Major Flint's residence, of Georgian red brick like her own, and opposite was that of Captain Puffin. They were both bachelors, though Major Flint was generally supposed to have been the hero of some amazingly amorous adventures in early life, and always turned the subject with great abruptness when anything connected with duelling was mentioned. It was not, therefore, unreasonable to infer that he had had experiences of a bloody sort, and colour was added to this romantic conjecture by the fact that in damp, rheumatic weather his left arm was very stiff, and he had been known to say that his wound troubled him. What wound that was no one exactly knew— it might have been anything from a vaccination mark to a sabre-cut, for having said that his wound troubled him, he would invariably add, "'Pshaw, that's enough about an old campaigner,' and though he might subsequently talk of nothing else except the old campaigner, he drew a veil over his old campaigns. That he had been in service in India was indeed probable by his referring to lunch as Tiffin, and calling to his parlour-maid with the ejaculation of Kihai. As her name was Sarah, this was clearly a reminiscence of days in bungalows. When not in a rage, his manner to his own sex was bluff and hearty, but whether in a rage or not, his manner to the fairies, or a lovely woman, was gallant and pompous in the extreme. He certainly had a lock of hair in a small gold specimen case on his watch-chain, and had been seen to kiss it when, rather carelessly, he thought that he was unobserved. Miss Mapp's eye, as she took her seat in her window on this sunny July morning, lingered for a moment on the Major's house, before she proceeded to give a disgusted glance at the pictures on the back page of her morning illustrated paper, which chiefly represented young women dancing in rings in the surf, or lying on the beach, in attitudes which Miss Mapp would have scorned to adjust herself to. Neither the Major nor Captain Puffin were very early risers, but it was about time that the first signals of animation might be expected. 
Indeed, at this moment, she quite distinctly heard the muffled roar, which to her experienced ear was easily interpreted to be Kihai. So the major has just come down to breakfast, she mechanically inferred, and it's close on ten o'clock. Let me see. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, porridge morning. Her penetrating glance shifted to the house exactly opposite to that in which it was porridge morning, and even as she looked, a hand was thrust out of a small upper window and deposited a sponge on the sill. Then from the inside, the lower sash was thrust firmly down, so as to prevent the sponge from blowing away and falling into the street. Captain Puffin, it was therefore clear, was a little later than the major that morning. But he always shaved and brushed his teeth before his bath, so that there was but a few minutes between them. General manoeuvres in tilling, the gradual burstings of fluttering life from the chrysalis of the night, the emergence of the ladies of the town with their wicker baskets in their hands for housekeeping purchases, the exodus of men to catch the 11.20 a.m. steam tram out to the golf links, and other first steps in the duties and diversions of the day, did not get into full swing till half-past ten, and Miss Mapp had ample time to skim the headlines of her paper and indulge in chaste meditations about the occupants of these two houses before she need really make herself alert to miss nothing. Of the two, Major Flint, without doubt, was the more attractive to the feminine sense. For years Miss Mapp had tried to cajole him into marrying her, and had not nearly finished yet. With his record of adventure, with the romantic reek of India, and camphor, in the tiger-skin of the rugs that strewed his hall and surged like a rising tide up the wall, with his haughty and gallant manner, with his loud shawings and sniffs at nonsense and balderdash, his thumpings on the table to emphasize an argument, with his wound and his prodigious swipes at golf, his intolerance of any who believed in ghosts, microbes or vegetarianism, there was something dashing and risky about him. You felt that you were in the presence of some hot coal straight from the furnace of creation. Captain Puffin, on the other hand, was of clay so different that he could hardly be considered to be made of clay at all. He was lame and short and meagre, with strings of peaceful beads and Papuan aprons in his hall, instead of wild tiger-skins, and had a jerky, inattentive manner and a high-pitched voice. Yet to Miss Mapp's mind there was something behind his unimpressiveness that had a mysterious quality, all the more so because nothing of it appeared on the surface. Nobody could call Major Flint, with his bawlings and his sniffings, the least mysterious. He laid all his loud cards on the table, great hulking kings and aces. But Miss Mapp felt far from sure that Captain Puffin did not hold a joker, which would some time come to light. The idea of being Mrs. Puffin was not so attractive as the other, but she occasionally gave it her remote consideration. Yet there was mystery about them both, in spite of the fact that most of their movements were so amply accounted for. As a rule, they played golf together in the morning, reposed in the afternoon, as could easily be verified by anyone standing on a still day in the road between their houses, and listening to the loud and rhythmical breathings that fanned the tranquil air. 
certainly went out to tea-parties afterwards and played bridge till dinner-time, or if no such entertainment was proffered them, occupied arm-chairs at the country-club, or laboriously amassed a hundred at billiards. Though tea-parties were profuse, dining out was very rare at Tilling. Patience, or a jigsaw puzzle, occupied the hour or two that intervened between domestic supper and bedtime, but again and again Miss Mapp had seen lights burning in the sitting-room of those two neighbours, at an hour when such lights as were still in evidence at Tilling were strictly confined to bedrooms, and should, indeed, have been extinguished there. And only last week, being plucked from slumber by some unaccountable indigestion, for which she blamed a small green apple, she had seen at no less than twelve-thirty in the morning the lights in Captain Puffin's sitting-room still shining through the blind. This had excited her so much that at risk of toppling into the street she had craned her neck from her window and observed a similar illumination in the house of Major Flint. They were not together, then, for in that case any prudent householder, and God knew that they both of them scraped and saved enough, or if he didn't know, Miss Mapp did, would have quenched his own lights if he were talking to his friend in his friend's house. The next night, the pangs of indigestion having completely vanished, she set her alarm-clock at the same timeless hour, and had observed exactly the same phenomenon. Such late hours, of course, amply accounted for these late breakfasts, but why, so Miss Mapp pithily asked herself, why these late hours? Of course they both kept summer-time, whereas most of Tilling utterly refused, except when going by train, to alter their watches because Mr. Lloyd George told them to. But even allowing for that, then she perceived that summer-time made it later than ever for its adherence, so that was no excuse. Miss Mapp had a mind that was incapable of believing the improbable, and the current explanation of these late hours was very improbable indeed. Major Flint often told the world in general that he was revising his diaries, and that the only uninterrupted time which he could find in this pleasant whirl of life at Tilling was when he was alone in the evening. Captain Puffin, on his part, confessed to a student's curiosity about the ancient history of Tilling, with regard to which he was preparing a monograph. He could talk, when permitted, by the hour, about the reclamation from the sea of the marshland south of the town, and about the old Roman road which was built on a raised causeway, of which traces remained, but it argued, so thought Miss Mapp, an unprecedented egoism on the part of Major Flint, and an equally unprecedented love of antiquities on the part of Captain Puffin, that they should prosecute their studies, with gas at the present price, till such hours. No, Miss Mapp knew better than that, but she had not made up her mind exactly what it was that she knew. She mentally rejected the idea that egoism, even in these days of diaries and autobiographies, and antiquities accounted for so much study, with the same healthy intolerance with which a vigorous stomach rejects unwholesome food, and did not allow herself to be insidiously poisoned by its retention. But as she took up her light aluminum opera-glasses to make sure whether it was Isabel Poppet or not, 
who was now stepping with that high, prancing tread into the stationers in the high street, she exclaimed to herself, for the three hundred and sixty-fifth time after breakfast, "'It's very baffling!' for it was precisely a year to-day since she had first seen those mysterious midnight squares of illuminated blind. Baffling, in fact, was a word that constantly made short appearances in Miss Mapp's vocabulary, though its retention for a whole year over one subject was unprecedented. But never yet had baffled sullied her wells of pure undefiled English. Movement had begun— Mrs. Plaistow, carrying her wicker basket, came round the corner by the church, in the direction of Miss Mapp's window, and as there was a temporary coolness between them, following violent heat, with regard to some worsted of brilliant rose-matter hue, which a forgetful draper had sold to Mrs. Plaistow, having definitely promised it to Miss Mapp, but Miss Mapp's large-mindedness scorned to recall the sordid details of this paltry appropriation. The heat had quite subsided, and Miss Mapp was, for her part, quite prepared to let the coolness regain the normal temperature of cordiality the moment that Mrs. Plaistow returned that worsted. Outwardly and publicly friendly relationships had been resumed, and as the coolness had lasted six weeks or so, it was probable that the worsted had already been incorporated into the ornamental border of Mrs. Plaistow's jumper or winter scarf, and a proper expression of regret would have to do instead. So the nearer Mrs. Plaistow approached, the more invisible she became to Miss Mapp's eye, and when she was within saluting distance had vanished altogether. Simultaneously Miss Poppet came out of the stationers in the high street. Mrs. Plaistow turned the corner below Miss Mapp's window, and went bobbing along down the steep hill. She walked with the motion of those mechanical dolls sold in the street, which have three legs set as spokes to a circle, so that their feet emerge from their dress with Dutch and rigid regularity, and her figure had a certain squat rotundity that suited her gait. She distinctly looked into Captain Puffin's dining-room window as she passed, and with the misplaced juvenility so characteristic of her, waggled her plump little hand at it. At the corner beyond Major Flint's house she hesitated a moment, and turned off down the entry into the side street where Mr. Wise lived. The dentist lived there, too, and as Mr. Wise was away on the continent of Europe, Mrs. Plaistow was almost certain to be visiting the other. Rapidly Miss Mapp remembered that at Mrs. Bartlett's bridge-party yesterday Mrs. Plaistow had selected soft chocolates for consumption, instead of those stuffed with nougat or almonds. That furnished additional evidence for the dentist, for generally you could not get a nougat chocolate at all if Godiva Plaisto had been in the room for more than a minute or two. As she crossed the narrow cobbled roadway, with the grass growing luxuriantly between the rounded pebbles, she stumbled and recovered herself with a swift little forward run, and the circular feet twinkled with the rapidity of those of a thrush, "'scudding over the lawn. "'By this time Isabel Poppet "'had advanced as far as the fish-shop three doors below the turning "'down which Mrs. Plaistow had vanished. "'Her prancing progress paused there for a moment, "'and she waited with one knee highly elevated, "'like a statue of a curvetting horse, "'before she finally decided to pass on. 
but she passed no farther than the fruit-shop next door, and took the three steps that elevated it from the street in a single prance, with her Roman nose high in the air. Presently she emerged, but with no obvious rotundity like that of a melon projecting from her basket, so that Miss Mapp could see exactly what she had purchased, and went back to the fish-shop again. Surely she would not put fish on the top of fruit, and even as Miss Mapp's lucid intelligence rejected this supposition, the true solution struck her. "'Ice,' she said to herself, and sure enough, projecting from the top of Miss Poppet's basket, when she came out, was an angular peak, wrapped up in paper already wet. Miss Poppet came up the street, and Miss Mapp put up her illustrated paper again, with the revolting picture of the Brighton sea-nymphs turned towards the window. Peeping out behind it, she observed that Miss Poppet's basket was apparently oozing with bright venous blood, and felt certain that she had bought red currants. That, coupled with the ice, made conjecture complete. She had bought red currants slightly damaged, or they would not have oozed so speedily, in order to make that iced red-currant fool of which she had so freely partaken at Miss Mapp's last bridge-party. That was a very scurvy trick, for iced red-currant fool was an invention of Miss Mapp's, who, when it was praised, said that she had inherited the recipe from her grandmother. But Miss Poppet had evidently entered the lists against Grandmother Mapp, and she had as evidently guessed that quite inferior fruit, fruit that was distinctly off, was undetectable when severely iced. Miss Mapp could only hope that the fruit in the basket now bobbing past her window was so much off that it had begun to ferment. Fermented red-currant fool was nasty to the taste, and, if persevered in, disastrous in its effects. General unpopularity might be needed to teach Miss Poppet not to trespass on Grandmamma Mapp's preserves. Isabel Poppet lived with a flashy and condescending mother just round the corner beyond the gardener's cottage, and opposite the west end of the church. They were comparatively new inhabitants of Tilling, having settled here only two or three years ago, and Tilling had not yet quite ceased to regard them as rather suspicious characters. Suspicion smouldered, though it blazed no longer. They were certainly rich, and Miss Mapp suspected them of being profiteers. They kept a butler, of whom they were both in considerable awe, who used almost to shrug his shoulders when Mrs. Poppet gave him an order. They kept a motor-car, to which Mrs. Poppet was apt to allude more frequently than would have been natural, if she had always been accustomed to one, and they went to Switzerland for a month every winter, and to Scotland, for the shooting season, as Mrs. Poppet terribly remarked, every summer. This all looked very black, and though Isabel conformed to the manners of Tilling in doing household shopping every morning with her wicker basket, and buying damaged fruit for food, and in dressing in the original homemade manner indicated by good breeding and narrow incomes, Miss Mapp was sadly afraid that these habits were not the outcome of chaste and instinctive simplicity, but of the ambition to be received by the old families of Tilling as one of them. 
But what did a true tilling knight want with a butler and a motor-car? And if these were not sufficient to cast grave doubts on the sincerity of the inhabitants of Ye Small a House, there was still very vivid in Miss Mapp's mind that dreadful moment, undimmed by the years that had passed over it, when Mrs. Poppet broke the silence at an altogether too sumptuous lunch, by asking Mrs. Plaistow if she did not find the super-tax a grievous burden on our little incomes. Miss Mapp had drawn in her breath sharply, as if in pain, and after a few gasps turned the conversation. Worst of all, perhaps, because more recent, was the fact that Mrs. Poppet had just received the dignity of the M.B.E., or Member of the Order of the British Empire, and put it on her cards, too, as if to keep the scandal alive. Her services in connection with the Tilling Hospital had been entirely confined to putting her motor-car at its disposal when she did not want it herself, and not a single member of the Tilling Working Club, which had knitted its fingers to the bone, and made enough seven-tailed bandages to reach to the moon, had been offered a similar decoration. If any one had, she would have known what to do. A stinging letter to the Prime Minister, saying that she worked not with hope of distinction, but from pure patriotism, would have certainly been Miss Mapp's rejoinder. She actually drafted the letter, when Mrs. Poppet's name appeared, and diligently waded through column after column of subsequent lists, to make sure that she, the originator of the Tilling Working Club, had not been the victim of a similar insult. Mrs. Poppet was a climber, that was what she was, and Miss Mapp was obliged to confess that very nimble she had been. The butler and the motor-car, so frequently at the disposal of Mrs. Poppet's friends, and the incessant lunches and teas had done their work. She had fed, rather than starved, Tilling into submission, and Miss Mapp felt that she alone upheld the dignity of the old families. She was positively the only old family, and a solitary spinster at that, who had not surrendered to the poppets. Naturally she did not carry her staunchness to the extent, so to speak, of a hunger-strike, for that would be singular conduct, only worthy of suffragettes, and she partook of the poppets' hospitality to the fullest extent possible. But— here her principles came in. She never returned the hospitality of the member of the British Empire, though she occasionally asked Isabel to her house, and abused her soundly on all possible occasions. This spiteful retrospect passed swiftly and smoothly through Miss Mapp's mind, and did not in the least take off from the acuteness with which she observed the tide in the affairs of Tilling which, after the ebb of the night, was now flowing again, nor did it, a few minutes after Isabel's disappearance round the corner, prevent her from hearing the faint tinkle of the telephone in her own house. At that she started to her feet, but paused again at the door. She had shrewd suspicions about her servants with regard to the telephone. She was convinced, though at present she had not been able to get any evidence on the point, that both her cook and her parlour-maid used it for their own base purposes at her expense, and that their friends habitually employed it for conversation with them. And perhaps, who knows, her housemaid was the worst of the lot, for she affected an almost incredible stupidity with regard to the instrument, 
and pretended not to be able either to speak through it or to understand its cacklings. All that might very well be assumed in order to divert suspicion, so Miss Mapp paused by the door to let any of these delinquents get deep in conversation with her friend. A soft and stealthy advance towards the room called the morning-room, a small apartment opening out of the hall, and used chiefly for the bestowal of hats and cloaks and umbrellas, would then enable her to catch one of them red-mouthed, or at any rate to overhear fragments of conversation which would supply equally direct evidence. She had got no farther than the garden door into her house, when Withers, her parlour-maid, came out. Miss Mapp thereupon began to smile and hum a tune, then the smile widened, and the tune stopped. "'Yes, Withers,' she said. "'Were you looking for me?' "'Yes, miss,' said Withers. "'Miss Poppet has just rung you up.' Miss Mapp looked much surprised. "'And to think that the telephone should have rung without my hearing it,' she said. "'I must be growing deaf, Withers, in my old age. What does Miss Poppet want?' "'She hopes you will be able to go to tea this afternoon and play bridge.' She expects that a few friends may look in at a quarter to four. End of chapter one, part one. Read by Kara Schallenberg, www.kray.org, on August 9th, 2008, in San Diego, California.